This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Jamie Wallum. Since around 2010, Jamie has been the touring and recording drummer for the group Tears for Fears. Jamie has also worked with artists such as Jackson Brown, David Crosby, Tommy Shaw, and Rage Against the Machine's Tom Morello. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So this episode goes a little bit long, but I want to say I've made a conscious choice to allow this to be what it is. And thank God for podcasts and this long-form discussion that sometimes is so necessary. And I believe this is an example of that. Jamie is very open and candid with us about the struggles that he's dealt with, whether it's uh, addiction and dependencies and other things in his life that I I feel like so many of us can relate to. And hopefully this conversation is something that will be helpful. So again, uh, it's such an honor to have somebody like Jamie, somebody uh, of this caliber of a player and talent, and also to know that he's a human being. So I really enjoyed this. I hope you enjoy this conversation as well with Jamie Wallum. I did not grow up in Canada. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but have always been a Canadian citizen because my mother, who is Canadian, who moved to the States into L.A. when she was about eight or nine and then lived in the States until she retired, married my father when she was younger, had two kids. So my sister and I are both American and Canadian because my mom, when she lived in the States her entire time, I want to say that's probably around 50 something, 40 something years, 48 years, she never renounced her Canadian citizenship. So she could never vote for the president of the United States. She, they took taxes out. And so she lives off of her social security and, you know, stuff that she made from, uh, from working all her years in the States, but she was never able to vote or do anything. Yeah. And, and, uh, and always wanted to move back to Canada, which she did about 18 years ago. And then 
and I continued to live, and my sister and I both lived in Los Angeles and had our lives and children and relationships and careers and stuff. And then um, a culmination of things sort of led to about four years ago, me coming up here, and the cul- the main culmination was absolutely by far my ne- the necessity for recovery for me from from addiction, and so that was the main. And I it was was sort of the last <laughs> the last house on the block, so to speak. You know, it was an opportunity to come up here where I had only come to visit her. You know, with my kids or myself once a year for you know a handful of years, and then but to but to move uh, because you can't get sober in your current life and situation and everything's really kind of crumbled in around, you know, seems like, oh, that should be such a, and what a beautiful place. So the point is, yes, absolutely. And, and exactly where I live in British Columbia is an island called Salt Spring Island. And it's a very, very small island population, I think is around 10,000 people. And it's, um, it's just, it's completely rugged. Like there's one four way stop sign on the whole island. So, <laughs> so I, yeah, so it's that kind. And you can't go to the grocery store without seeing someone. And I work, I, 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 I work at a lumberyard. So it's, uh, yeah, when I'm not, you know, touring or in here, I'm, I've been needing to, you know, be responsible and pay my bills and, and, uh, yeah, be a grown up, which is uh, taking a bit of time to get there. But I'm three years sober, just over. Well, it was three years back in September. So yeah, three years, three years plus sober, and uh, finally got enough clarity. And uh, you know, with <laughs> it's amazing what sobriety will do for your financial well being when you stop being a knucklehead. <laughs> you know. Let me ask you real quick because I, I've had the opportunity of of playing in Hawaii a couple times, and we've mm-hmm. talked to some of the locals there about what people experience when they move there. And I, and I just saw somebody online, a, a yoga guy that I follow, who uh, mentioned this as well. And I, I find it somewhat, maybe this is relevant to you moving to a new place in this juncture of your life, is that a lot of people find themselves in a place like Hawaii, just use that as an example, to get away from something. To get away, yeah. you know, like I'm going to start new. I'm going to get away from my problems. I'm going to move to this beautiful place, and then what they've found is that their problems follow them because it starts with themselves. They hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, you you couldn't have sort of described it uh, any better because that's literally. And in the world of recovery, there is a term for that sort of considered. Uh, pulling a locational, like you just you're, you're carrying the same suitcase and unpacking the exact same baggage, no matter where you lay it down on the bed. So it it's unfortunately for a lot of people who think, and you know, I'm not taking away the fact that that you know, for, for many circ under many circumstances, and the ingredient of having a, a different location, hopefully a healthy location, you know, if you're moving somewhere that's going to re- alleviate some stress versus hopefully you're not going, continuing downward somehow. But, but yeah, uh, it gets, I mean, there were points in times before I came up here and I speak openly about it, about where I'm, where I came from and the experiences I had, but there were times where I still, like I slept in my car. I didn't have a place to call home. I didn't have an apartment anymore and stuff was in storage and I was going in and out of a, re- a very, a very difficult relationship and so then you know you get and then when you throw alcohol and drugs into that and and uh 
stuff can really and and it was you know I say this very openly too. Of course, you always hear, oh well, two people make a relationship work or not work, and I believe that absolutely. But if you're talking, okay, to make 100%, you know, there are cases where there's about 97% of the uh, goofiness is, is one-sided. And for a lot of my life in my relationships, that's, I've struggled with that and been uh, never knowingly, and I, I promise that, like never knowingly uh, trying to be a, a bad human to someone I was in a relationship or cared about. But it's, again, it just goes along, there's a lot of, stuff that can be very, you know, can creep up on you. And again, if you're, if you're, I'm not going to say that I wasn't morally grounded. I grew up in a very grounded spiritual family and foundation. It was just, you start compromising what, you start kind of giving parts of your soul away for certain things. And, 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 uh, you know, but you don't think you're sort of doing that. And then of course, you know, as an artist, you, you tend to, I have found that as an artist, I've tended to wallow sometimes in the darkness because, you know, some really good creative material comes out of this and the, oh, woe is me and the the brokenhearted, you know, minstrel, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, man, no, I was just really inconsiderate for most of my adult life when it came to relationships I was in because I was very self-centered. And some of that self-centeredness was self-destructive behavior right that, that was like oh look at how bad my life oh it's going really i need help and you know but it's all it was all still very self-centered uh sort of behavior and so uh you know that's been a huge thing it's been one of the biggest things that that being in a new location has allowed me to do is and in my sobriety is meet people now to try to try to make to the best of my ability make amends and make peace and do what I can to clean up any wreckage and damage that I've caused but it's also given me a new opportunity to meet new people who have met the sober me who have met and oddly enough most of them where I live now have only met the uh, crane operating lumberyard shipping manager guy who came from Los Angeles like and they might know and learn at some point what I do sometimes that travels fast too in a small town but but most most everyone here knows me and adores me for (laughs) Jamie at Windsor Plywood so it's pretty pretty wild what happened that three and a half years ago almost made you kind of turn everything around and say this is this is the time this is the time to focus on recovery and changing the world well, yeah, I appreciate you asking it in such a, a really simple and direct way. I, I think I was gonna make a joke and go, well, "It depends on how long your podcast has," because it's a, it's about <laughs> a ten it's about a ten year story. But the 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 culmination of of things that began and and often you know the, the there's people that you, you refer to it as like it's a um, a downward you know you're you're leveling downward slide. Uh, When's he going to hit bottom? Things of that nature. It was bad for about the last f- four or five years. And I should have known it was bad when the main relationship I was in um, at the time, of which is the longest relationship I'd been in, and the mother of my daughter, um, when I knew that that was going south and, and my behavior was still... Um, I was too far past the point too of realizing and coming back um, to to get help because I did I hadn't admitted to myself that I had a problem. Um, I thought it was much more uh, other things in the relationship and blah blah blah. You know, and of course I made lots of what you start to believe a lot of your own crap too, right? So 
I, uh, but yeah, there were things that started to lead up to it. But ultimately, and finally, um, when I had I had made a decision to move in with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and so I let the lease go. I, I was done. My lease was up on the place I was renting, and so we made a decision to move in together. And um, yeah, we were struggling though. It was not a wise decision at the time. But again, my my lifestyle at that time was very erratic and uh, was not not in a healthy place. I had been forbidden to see my daughter at that point. Um, I had DUIs. I had been arrested a few times for drunk in public. There was there was numerous scrapes. And then again, when you with the relationship that is 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 definitely very can be very intense. I don't I don't speak of it negatively because I don't choose to. I don't think there's any point in going, oh, toxic. Well, the tox the toxicity was definitely primarily the, the stuff, the scars. Cause once you break trust and once things happen in a relationship where um you you damage someone's, you know, respect for you or their trust in you, it can be very difficult no matter how much you feel you love or care about the other person. And so but we struggled through that for a very, very long time, uh, like like a very wounded, <laughs> very wounded animal. And frankly, I was the one that did the, the the wounding. And then it just got compiled. Then there was more hurt and more hurt on top of it. And it just got it just got really bad. And so, shortly after I made the decision to move in, that whole thing really bottomed out. And that's a period of very dark. I had no money. I was I, I was living in my car. Uh, scraping together what money I could literally to buy alcohol and uh and I, I had burnt out even most every bridge I had to crash on couches and then people that were second stage I was just still too prideful or embarrassed to to you know that's the drummer from tears for fears man like what what's what's going on there and I, I yeah I was really it was a very very uh, difficult, difficult place. And then the bottom line, it culminated into the fact that because of uh, many of the crimes that had happened re- that were alcohol related, I, I, it culminated into a 90 day, three month term in uh, LA County. That's yeah. Yeah. I was going to, so, yeah. So I did a three month stint. Well, no, I, I went in to do my three month stint. I did 31 days of it and then was released, but I did 31, which is, in LA County, yeah, when when you've got everyone from your family or your friends or your lawyer going, it could be you. You'll probably be out the next morning. It was all alcohol related. It's not a felonies. It's not whatever. But uh, there was a restraining order violation. When you do any of that kind of stuff that's involved, and there's breakings of that, it, 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 they go hard. So yeah, I had to do a third of third of that time, and I can tell you that I went in to LA County thirty one days sober. And I did 31 days in L.A. County and stayed sober. So then I meet it. When I got out, I flew straight back. I had been living in Canada. So the year that I moved up here, the first year I was here, I struggled very badly. I was I was trying to get sober but could not stay sober. And again, almost sort of ruined the opportunity to be here. And then and and I knew the other thing is this. It's not like someone showed up at my door and said, here, we're dragging you down to L.A. County. This I knew I had an, a lawyer and I knew that this was coming for about six months and they postponed it so that I could do tours. So I, I did like the, the last two tours of 2000 and, uh, 2019 or the first part of 2000. Anyways, I did the two tears for fears tours in 2019, knowing that I was going to have to go to jail in October, uh, after the tours were done for three months. And that was petrifying. And so during that time I was struggling, I was trying to, 
I was playing good drums. That's never suffered because I think it's my my one safe haven that's like doesn't no one can touch me there, right? Except myself. And so uh I played really good drums, but outside of the stage I was still a wreck. And then I'd come back here and I'd get and then I'd I'd fall apart and have to clean up and then I'd get another couple months sober and I'd go back out on the road or I'd do a a, a you know, one off or I'd go down to LA to do a session or something and then I'd 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 miss my flight back home a week later and I'd be disappear for a month and then I'd come crawling out of the woodwork asking my mom, can I please come back? And she, after about the third time too, she, and we're talking nightmare stuff. Like I'm, you know, I got, I just my own self-destruction, not, not at that point too. I wasn't trying to hurt. I wasn't being, I just, you know, flying back from London, 14 hours, you know, landing in Toronto, then switching. And I've been drinking since, a day before I got on the plane to fly back plus the plane and had the landing and got pulled off the plane in Vancouver and taken to the drunk tank. Like I don't even remember it passed out. They had to put me in handcuffs and take me to the drunk tank. I didn't get arrested because I didn't do anything wrong. I was just a danger to myself, you know, so stuff like that. And, and, uh, but when I knew I had to go to jail and I was coming closer and closer, I just said, this is it. I've got to, I've got to do it. And, and uh, it was a, it was a huge reckoning with myself and whatever you want to call you know your your demons and your stuff and I said and I'm going right into it like I've I've got to I'm not going into the process of LA County having to detox from alcohol on the first day or something so I had to go through through that last bit of ugliness up here and then like I said I had 31 days and I flew down to LA and turned my you know showed up for my court date where I was taken into custody and. And did that, and I stayed sober while I was there, um, which is not easy to do because it's weird as it sounds. People don't realize that it's like oh, there's more. I, yeah, I, I had more access to drugs and 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 weird types of alcohol. <laughs> you know, they 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 make it themselves and stuff. But I had more access to stuff in there than I probably did outside because I didn't need any money. You know, so but no, I stayed sober. And again, the cool part was, and this is a, something that I I'm I'm hoping to one day be able to sort of put down into a story. But I uh, met some amazing people in there. Uh, definitely met some scary people and some people that I knew right away. Like I don't I I I, you know. And then that whole thing about oh, keep your head down, but don't put your chin down too far. Like don't you know don't don't act like you're looking for trouble, but don't look like you can be pushed around. And just you know, and and the crazy part is. They started calling me OG, like, like because I was at this was three and a half years ago, whatever, right? I'm, uh, I'm 50, 50 years old, and the average age of the guys where I was at were, you know, nineteen to maybe thirty at the most, twenty five. Like we're talking young kids in LA, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, and it's a trip. It's a trip. So bottom line is, I, I, I stayed sober. I came back up here. I got a job straight away at the at the lumberyard knowing absolutely nothing about building or building materials or anything just i was going to sweep floors i didn't care like i just needed to get some 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 structure and some program and some income going and whatever and uh and again because during this time tears wasn't touring i didn't miss anything i wasn't missing anything with tears but we're not on a a retainer can i ask you about that that situation with the band i mean they must have known what you were going through and 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 if so and i guess the answer is yes i mean like were you getting support from them i mean i know that those guys aren't strangers to addiction they're not strangers to that in their uh you know in their in their vicinity and their you know uh so 
how did they manage that? How did they not be like, okay, Jamie, you're too much of a liability. Um, we're going to go find somebody else that can do this. Be really, really honest about it. And and to this extent, or maybe even much more than saying, oh yeah, almost, it almost cost me the gig, you know, it, as as of afterthought, I've shared a few times, but I've never really spoken in any public forum about the specifics of that, which I, I guess I could say this too. I don't necessarily feel like I got to say, oh, well, so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. But the point is both Kurt uh, Smith and Roland were, Orzabal were very aware of my struggling for me, for a while. Because uh, when, again, the relationship that I told you that, that ended my daughter's mom and that, I had just started in the band and we were, t I was in the band for maybe eight months before that relationship ended. And I was, a that end, it ended, I literally, the relationship ended and eight days later I had to get on a plane and fly to South America and tour South America with, uh, all through South America with uh, Mexico and South America with Tears for Fears for, I don't know, seven weeks. So I, you've got a, you've got a guy who's now going, oh really? Okay. You want to leave me and whatever great well i'm going on i'm going on the road i'm with tears for fears and i'm going to south america and so it became the how much whatever country i was in i was experiencing uh, mass quantities of whatever the local or the traditional <laughs> alcohol right so mexico is all tequilas and different types of tequilas and then of course you get into all the different caparenas and and uh, you know the the stuff throughout south america and, and it was just a blur and you know like i said again never i'm 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 not I wasn't Keith Moon and I wasn't, you know, Keith Richards or any uh, John Bonham type of stuff, but I was drinking heavily. And, but, and, and the crazy part about that is it took so, it takes so much energy to, to function that all of my energy was uh, in the day, other than when I had to play, was geared around how do I get, how do I pull myself together from the night before and the day, and, and the day of feeling so ill because, you know, pull myself together without looking like a complete train wreck and then walk on stage and, and perform for an hour and a half, you know, at, at top capacity. And so it was weird. I, I can't say that I, I, I don't feel like I ever shorted anyone in performance, but I, you, you know, internally when you're on your game and when you're on fire and when you're, when you're primed and it was just so much work to maintain a, the basic level of, of, playing skills needed to perform a good show and a tight show with a band like tears for fears you know it's a very intricate it's it's a very tight outfit they they everyone knows if someone's struggling for whatever reason musically because you can just tell you know that's how in tune and, and sort of tight we are as a group so they knew they offered help and i'll tell you this uh i it almost cost me my gig the last two tours i did here's the thing they there was there was prerequisites about my behavior going into it, and I hid it. And now some could say, oh, you can never hide it. You can never hide it. And I think I probably didn't hide it 100%. They're smart people. But again, being three quarters of the way through a tour and what would it would take to do that, as long as I still seem like he's showing up on time for lobby call and he's coming to the band dinners and he's playing well and whatever, you know. Um, but... So, so there was criteria, and they had another guy in the wings um, on both of those tours, and so, so that was a very unnerving, very difficult thing. And yet, still, I did not stay sober because of that, and I, I very well could have and should have lost my gig if it was if it was taken to the letter of the law. But I think they wanted so badly to see me get well, and I'll tell you this too: tears for fears, which is you know Roland and Kurt, they they paid for me to go to rehab, and I went to rehab. So the band, 
Yeah. So you talk about they, they, when I was desperate, and now here's the thing. I came out of that rehab. This was before the last two tours. This is in 2018. I left that rehab early and uh, did not compl- and did not stay sober. Then got sober, you know, and was given this ultimatum, did those two tours, which of, and I speak openly about this, I paid back the money that was, was put, you know, put out for me to go to the rehab place. So during those two tours, I was not even making any money because I was paying back a, a lot, which I didn't stay at, a rehab bill that I didn't stay at. So you could see it was just, it was a lot of, I, I th- so to draw all this together to the final answer, I just had had I had had enough. Like I, it was either it was either at that point you've got to like everything. I just say it looks it looked like it was Mount Everest, right? And you stand at the bottom and look up. You're like, there's no way. But you put your head down and you look at your boots and you just start walking. And lo and behold, twenty minutes later, you look back and you go, "Wow, I'm okay. I can keep doing this." And it sounds cliche and it sounds silly, but that's literally I just decided to start. And with each sort of day that went by that I wasn't for sure wasn't causing anyone else more damage. I, my mom wasn't worried about me. Uh, she knew where I was. My, I was showing up at my job. I was getting a paycheck. I was going home. I was going to the gym. Then I was going home and eating and going to bed and waking up at five in the morning and doing this for s- six days a week in the cold, beautiful, rugged terrain. Like now I sound like Rocky, but it's that, it's that thing. And I'm telling you, it's been, it's been painful. There's been a lot of, uh, and, and again, you know, I, I'm not, I, this has, this has brought out a, a part of me as a human, as a man, as a human and as a, as a father and as a, as an aging male, like, but, but working amongst and learning some of the crafts and some of the the skills, I should say, that I have up here since I've been here in, in just even in the trades of building has just been mind blowing. So, um, but the, the beautiful part is now I'm at the point of of having the studio built so I can actually begin to uh, pursue my career here. And I just hadn't been, I hadn't for sure had not emotionally, maturely, psychologically and financially been capable, uh, clear headed enough to bring together what has had to happen just to have my studio now. Right. And to do all this. So it's, uh, and tour we did, we toured last year. I toured, I toured the tipping point for the first time sober and it was unbelievable like it was so like what was the big difference for you mentally physically to do this and have playing as a point of reference i think the two things that i approached this last tour that we did um different than i had ever approached anything is number one of course it's different in the fact that it there's a clarity in it like there's a a a sharp sharp clarity everything from my eyesight to my ears, like the way things sound to the, to feeling the butterflies in my stomach to feeling like, like I had so much anxiety going into going in because again, for three years through COVID through being, a, I, I didn't even have a drum set up here for almost two years. So I hadn't played, like it was really crazy. And I, you know, I, I trust me, there's been a few people in my life that have been like, you know, you don't need to be so specific and give away the mystique. And, you know, people want to know you're like, what's the drummer from Tears for Fears doing? And, and I, you know, the crazy part is, and I sort of preface this when we talked about like who I am, like to me, one of the most integral and, and fascinating parts about where I'm at in my life is the fact that I kind of go like, yeah, I'm, 
I'm experiencing things by being completely transparent and talking openly about it that are not only healing for me, that are, but that are really actually touching other people going, I, God, he's so open about it. I guess it's okay to, to go like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Or I, you know, I, and, and recovery and, and whether it's about addiction or recovery, I just think there's, there's a, there's sometimes the plain and simple truths that are out there. And, and my experience has been in the last three years, I've gained more maturity and awareness and, and respect for many other things in life than, than music and what am I doing for my career and, and, and the cutthroatness of it all and the game and the business and the game and the, all the stuff, everything that, 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 Oh, it's exa- and and social media and blah 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 and who's doing this and who's and this and all the oh he's got a good buzz going and he's hyping he's hyping this and it's like well everything's just it's on and then and then you know what I think oh, I must just be getting old <laughs> and then I go no I think I just I just have a simpler I have a simpler waveform now like a, I've, I vibrate at a, at a much more uh, unchaotic frequency. So uh, a couple of things to unpack here. I, I, you and I are almost the same age, and uh, they, you know, they say statistically, uh, around your mid fifties is about the happiest you'll ever be in life. Because hopefully, I was going to say, because hopefully, you bought a sports car <laughs> <laughs> or a motorcycle, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I think it's because you come to terms with a lot of things. You're more in tune with reality. You're you're in tune with your expect your own expectations. What other people have uh, expected of you, um, I it it's interesting. Also, you talk about being candid and the kind of the ability to process that in a mature way that gives you a sense of internal freedom by being candid and open. Whether it is about injuries, mental illness, addiction, uh, other things that we all need to kind of um, be open about. Because now is in a time in our life where giving back is just as important in, uh, in, in a kind of a sense of responsibility. Um, and also think about all the people that we've learned from growing up, whether it was other drummers in the industry or our peers or a teacher, a professor, you know, whatever. And so it's like, man, now I get to carry that torch, not only as a father, but um, also as a brother, as a, as a you know, uh, uh, you know, whatever. So an employee, yeah, a, a yeah, brother, yeah, a sister, yeah. yeah, yeah. Every aspect and, of your life, yeah. And it, it just so what this all leads me to ask you is this kind of thing, the stigma around not being a drummer that does only only plays drums, only does sessions, only does touring, only does this, but like. I just left a touring gig for, for anybody that listened to episode 400 that we just put out last week. My co-host and I talk a little bit about it. He just got on the road with a gig. I just came off the road. And the decision around that was not an easy one. But what it's putting me, what and, and I don't want to, to make this about me, but right now, it's like I have probably less work than I've ever had before. It's kind of freaking me out. And I'm thinking, yeah. okay, if gigs don't start rolling in soon... I'm going to go, I'm going to need to go get a job uh, somewhere, you know, and I've done it before and I'm not afraid to do that. Yeah. And, um, and even this weekend, I'm doing some glass recycling for a guy that runs his own business here in Nashville. And you know what? 
I'm thinking about doing a social media post about it. Hey, everyone, guess what? Episode 402 with Jamie Wallum is coming out. We're going to talk about this and this and this and his work as a crane operator up in VC. Guess what I'm doing? I'm recycling glass. I'm doing some part-time work. Yeah. Rolling because that is fucking reality, man. Yeah. And, um, it doesn't mean, but anyways. Well, so let me let me just say this: when you're like, ah, oh, I don't want to talk. I don't want this to be about me. Absolutely, this point is about you, and you and I appreciate you sharing it. So, just so you know, that's the exact symbiotic kind of element that is involved with when people open up and aren't afraid to just kind of, sort of. I, I mean, again, I, I understand cards close to your chest, but at least people make like let people know their cards if you want. At least you know what I mean. Like it's there's no you don't have to because most of the time, I think that there's a good chunk of people that, and this sounds really crazy, but see if you follow this thread, right? It's pretty simple. The majority of people can smell someone being uh, pretentious or fake or whatever, and you can smell it, and yet, so you can, so yet people still do it anyway, and yet people smell it and don't call the people that, on it when they smell it and just go, what are you doing? Like, oh, okay, so this is your whole pretentiousness thing. I look at it like, like, okay, I've recently got, I'm late to the party, but I'll tell you, my favorite album of all time right now in the last three months, I can't stop listening to it still, every day, Silk Sonic. So good. So good. I don't, uh, it's the Bruno Mars, Anderson Pack record that oh, those okay. guys yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The very funked out, uh, old throwback to the old 60s and 70s Motown and funk and Bootsy, uh, uh, George, uh, Bootsy Collins is on it. I mean, anyways, it's unbelievable. And and yet when I and so I've I've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole like watching these guys live and hearing them live and see how their production is and incredible musicianship incredible musicians but their whole thing is to be as flamboyant sort of every every cliche that went along and they're doing it intentionally and so I go that's really great it's nothing but a complete and obvious tip of the hat but yet they're still getting away with getting to live completely audacious sort of lifestyles and sort of images as they do this thing. But they're doing it as a as a absolute like uh, kind of parody of the of the big fun create right. But my point is, you can see that it's a it's sort of an act. But there's so many people that are walking around with such a pretentious nature about what they're, and it's all about the image and it's all about the you know the whole thing. We've heard it a million times. I don't even want to say it. That's why I even just say social media, right? Any form of what you're trying to put out, I. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I went through the same thing with my Instagram and certain other, you know, social media things of going like, do I even say anything about or even within I'm talking my own personal social media, which is me communicating socially with friends and family of whatever kind, texting, phone calls. I I was apprehensive to tell anybody that I was working at a lumberyard because the first yeah, first thing people think is like, Why is he working at a lumberyard? And I'm like, well, because I need a job that pays steady work because I have a lot of debt because I've done a lot of really stupid things. And so the responsible thing to do if I'm actually going to grow up, man up and be responsible is get a job, pay my debt off and put my life back together. And that's all I and, and I and so then I became so focused. And again, you're you, I'm talking being out on a on a forklift in in minus 10 degree weather and and freezing and literally going what am i doing what am i f fucking what the fuck am i doing with my life i'm on a forklift in canada 
And like, months ago, I'm, you were on stage. On stage at playing Royal Albert Hall or playing the Staples Center two nights in a row or doing whatever. And it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been, but all of it has, I'm not, you know, I will absolutely say it. It's stripped away. It has, it has uh, cracked away the, the shell of, of the, the sort of, scar tissue and and damage i've i've really had that surrounding me kind of was i was kind of a, i was like pig pen but with chaos <laughs> that's what i call it it was like pig pen with just some you know just bad mojo because i just had i i really i just didn't care too i i got for a good period of time i was just almost catatonic like i just didn't i didn't know which way to go and it was everything was just sort of in slow motion and I was stuck, very stuck. And I was afraid, I was afraid to die, but I didn't really want to live the, you know, I was, I was, I'd given up on sort of how to get out of it. And then again, I had the opportunity with my, with my mom to come up here and get well. And it's, and it's, it hasn't been easy, but I couldn't. And now I don't want to trade anything. You know, the only tough part, and I speak openly about this, the toughest part about my life and my situation is that I'm not with my kids full time. My son lives, he's 25 now, but he lives just outside of Memphis uh, in Mississippi. And um, my daughter lives in the DC area. She moved there a couple years ago with her mom. And so I've been to see her, that, that relationship has been beautifully, uh, and it still has a great deal of, of work that I don't speak about and won't ever speak about, but it's been miraculously restored i've seen her four times since uh and i didn't speak speak to her or see her for almost three almost three and a half years did my own daughter right so through that stuff and so i've i've seen her in person i've flown to dc and and gotten a hotel and spent four days with my daughter and then flew back home and and have done that you know three times the toughest part now as i continue to get well and she continues to grow up is the fact that i can't daily see her and be in her life but i I bug her. I bug the snot out of her by text so much so that she's like, "Dad, I was sleeping." God, you know, like so. It's <laughs> it's it's awesome, it's yeah. like, and this is and this is honestly one of the first times I've even opened up about it that I haven't that I haven't cried. Well, like so, uh, like it. And this is no, this is one of the first times I've opened up about it. I've talked to my family lots about it, but speaking about it to, it always still strikes a nerve when you just dump it out on the table like that but at the same time it's again it's the fact that i feel that 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 emotional flair that makes me realize it's that it's that important for me and if it's that important for me i can't imagine my life's nowhere near exclusive like you can go oh well yeah man you know playing staples center two nights and then a year later you're in a forklift that's not common i could go okay well that's fine but it's it's common for many people that they play the staples center it's common that many people have been on a forklift in minus 10 degree lots of people so i've just got half and half like it, it, so it's not a big deal i just i started i started just relaxing about everything and taking in what i was actually given a chance rather than like here's my penance go to Canada, you don't get to be in LA anymore and you got to work at a lumberyard or whatever. I go, oh my gosh, here's the gift. I get handed trust from people that I, that didn't know me, that extended me a, a, a trust to work at their company, to have keys to their machinery, to open up their buildings, to have keys to registers. Not that I was a thief or a, you know what I mean? But like, these are people, I had people that wouldn't even return my call that said, if I came around, they'd call the police, that kind of thing. So it, yeah, it's uh I wouldn't trade it for anything, and it brings the sense of and it brings the sense of balance. So I had that going into, I had like I said, almost two and a half years of recovery and of living up here, doing doing right, if you would, or 
doing my best to do right uh, as much as I can. And and so, but what it did bring me is into a sense of great uh, awareness of what I was doing and, and that I got petrified going into it because again, I was used to uh, satiating that, that those anxieties with alcohol or drugs. Usually, if I started to feel it, and then when you're when you're uh, have it flowing in you consistently enough, then you just never feel really much of that stuff anyway, right? So I didn't feel I felt a lot more nervous sober, but that that lasted about three or four shows, and then I started getting in, and, and again, it never lasted longer than two songs, right? But it was a re, it's wicked for me when I walk out on stage. The first song is always the hardest scary like I can't and then I get so frustrated at myself for letting myself get to a place of being so gosh darn anxious like you know what I mean it's yeah. the weirdest thing I put myself through it every every show and so I re- was really working on what I could do to not put myself in that position right and and so yeah I found breathing um, a little bit of what I call meditation which is just eyes closed for you know even 45 seconds before I got to go out and 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 then, yeah, and then just making eye contact with everyone backstage and going like, let's do this. And you know you're connected. And and, and those guys are getting along famously, uh, truly famously now um, for the first, you know, and again, they, they've, they've their their stories are, are pretty epic and legendary, the feuds and the whatever, but they're, they're best friends as well as their business mates, as well as they're almost like brothers, as well as they're, you know, can't, can't stand. <laughs> they, they, they work best when they're, they work best when they're working, uh, when everything is peaceful, and and it's been peaceful for a while, and it's been that was the big difference. Aside, so it was, it was a very uh, parallel thing that happened with my own recovery, as well as Roland speaks very openly about what he went through um, in the last few years, which surrounded his writing, you know, the material for Tipping Point, and a lot of what he and Kurt dealt with, and what Roland was dealing with the, the death of his wife and her addiction. She was an alcoholic and a and took abuse prescription medication and he he is has been a heavy drinker he went to he went through through a lot of stuff himself and he speaks very openly about it but uh so we were all well you know we were all healthy and clear-headed and we're playing new music and really good new music that we loved like so yeah it was really good and then lo and behold we <laughs> We did 27 shows in the States and then flew over to the UK to do another 19. We got like seven or eight into it and, and, uh, and Kurt, fra- Kurt fractured four ribs and we had to stop. We had to, ca- yeah, we had to cancel the last nine or 10 shows. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's, that was unfortunately it, it, it. So now we're coming, we didn't go back out the rest of the year. And that's the other great thing that among the drumming people that I talked to, right? And in this kind of circle that I speak openly about is um, every situation is different. But in my opinion, the day of the retainer is there's is few and far between. Like so a, ba- a band like Tears for Fears, some people would think like, oh, well, you play drums for Tears. Like, first of all, people, many people don't even understand that I, I was not the original drummer. I'm not I'm not uh, part of the songwriting of any sort. So I don't have publishing and I only get paid when I tour. And, and so the rest of the time, of course, we're all friends and if there's events, and, but I only get paid when I work. So in between that, then I'm responsible for. So the, the crazy part is, is when you come back from three months of touring and you go, wow, I've done pretty well. Although the reality is I should have done three times that well because I spent so much money on booze and stupidity while I'm touring 
right? That then I then I come back and I've only got a third of what I should have made, but that third is still plenty to go like, wow, I got a little bit of time to decompress from tour like people do and whatever. And all I was doing was just spending money way quicker because uh, I was I didn't have anything else to go do. I was just home, right? And then so then I find myself up uh, six weeks later going, wow. I'm almost out of money and I don't have anything on the books with tears for another four months. What am I going to do? And then I scramble with scrambling for work. And it was, it was, it was a, it's a very tough, it's a very tough thing. And I'll tell you this, honestly, I, the times younger in my career when I was in my twenties and even thirties that I was really doing my best to forge myself as a career working musician, drummer. Um, I started, I started taking work thinking that everything leads to something. We all hear that. Oh, yeah, this will lead to that and bag out that or whatever. And and many times that is true. But I think the control over that happening gets a little diluted because I don't think, I think you could still have some choices in what you consider putting yourself in. And I was just doing everything. I was doing everything from from bar mitzvahs with, with, and reading out of the real book and stuff like that and, and casuals and and boat gigs and what, like I was doing all kinds of stuff. And to be honest with you, um, I started resenting the hell out of playing drums and playing music. And when it, when I would still be doing that kind of work, playing girl from Ipanema, you know, <laughs> and nothing against girl. I love it. I'm not saying, but, but it was, I was, I knew that I was compromising. Uh, I was compromising a lot about what I was trying to do just for the sake of trying to make a living. And then I still wasn't able to make a successful enough living by piecing together a lot of the stuff. And I, I think got, that's tough. Yeah. That's yeah. Because we, and, and sorry to cut you off, but I mean, it, no, that's it. All, well, I, yeah. I'm working and, and, and I constantly be busy and to be working and working and working. And it's like, at what point do you just begin to resent? Like you said, resent playing drums. And when does, the uh, desire to like still have a good relationship with music, good relationship with playing and 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 drumming and everything else that has meant so much to you. And I say you as the royal you, all of us, mm-hmm. that it means so much and has given us, uh, a, you know, uh, just such, you know, an amazing experience to be a musician, to be a drummer. At, at what point do you have to say, okay, I'm making too many compromises and um, I need to take a step back, say no to these gigs, go do a forklift, go do glass recycling, go do what I need to do so I can be available for the gig that I want to do, the session that I want to do, the kind of music and surround myself with the kind of people that make me love music and, you know. 100% and the afterthought to that that I would even include that happened to me was that in doing these other things that had nothing to do with my drumming whatever it is and still doing other things that had nothing to do with my drumming um, it brought the only way I can describe it is I think it brings a sense of well-roundedness to you as a human so therefore as weird and as crazy as some people think that translates in how you you sound as a drummer and as a musician. It it rounds out the way that we feel. Drummers are, and again, I always am so aware. I have this like internal cliche uh, alert that goes off if I feel like, oh, you know, I feel like, like don't you just you stepped up. It's like a like a my brain gives itself its own uh, parameters to work under. Like don't so cliches. I I try and stay away from. But the reality is. 
there's something about drummers and the community of drummers that is very different and than other musicians. It just is. Now, musicians, all musicians, then you get into that other sub, larger subculture of musicians because I can have a, I have amazing guitar player friends who we are like brothers and whatever. But among drummers, something happens. It's like magnets to me. The drummers are more like the magnets when the sides go together than than any of that stuff because there's a rub. Most of them. I've met a few and we all have. You know, it's like, I just don't, I, I smell it a mile away when I feel like someone's trying to prove something and being that, because it's like, man, I, I swear to you, and I, this is the stuff you're going to get into now because I'm just, I'm starting to warm up, right? I, I don't, I don't, I, 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 you know what? I, we should hit, re- we should actually be recording this. That'd be Are funny. we not recording any of this? <laughs> Oh my God! Let me start at the beginning. I drank a lot, and then I really messed up, and now I'm real better. Now I'm better, and then now we're up to yeah, now. Yeah, great, so, great, great. Drummers, we're drummers that promote themselves way too uh, aggressively for my taste. That's all. I, I'm starting to go like, and and this is the great struggle. The term I heard, and it actually came from some guys in Nashville that I know who I love dearly and whatever, but they called them promosexuals. I don't know if that's a term you've ever heard. And I'm not, I'm like I said, I hope I'm not, if, I'm, if you get stuff going, who, what the heck is that guy talking? Like, God, oh, get that guy out of there. I'm, I'm, I, I just thought it was funny because it was a, a funny, you know. But the point is, if I want to set up an Instagram page or a social media page or whatever, and every single thing is a clip of me playing something. Now, here's the thing. If you're ed- educational, there's so... I get it. I get it. And it is my page. So again, it's, it's what your focus is and what you're directing it. I just, this, this comes back to when we first hit record, right? About the, the, the thing I was talking about with this thing that you can kind of smell for me. And, and the weird thing is I'm struggling with as a human being and a male in my fifties is like, I can smell it a mile away. And in a lot of ways I go, Oh, I don't want to be that. And yet why do I still find myself having it and post thinking about what I'm going to post on Instagram and, and thinking about it from a mindset of, I want it to be valid and I don't want it to be. I'm Once I catch myself doing that, I'm like, you're, you're doing the same thing. You're just calculating for what you think it should be. And you see what I mean? And it's like, ah, oh, I just, I'm just trying not to, I, I say this and everyone in your, in the, in the circle that knows what I mean by this, will get it. I've, I just, I'd rather be Jim Keltner than, uh, than, than whoever is, you know, uh, uh, Thomas Lang. And, and that's not a bad, that's, I just, I just, I can't, I, I'm not a chop guy. I'm not a tech guy. I'm certainly not a, uh, a super, uh, of the technical level there. There's so many guys. And this is not a false humility. I think I've got chops. I've got feel. I've spent a lot of time in the rooms working hard on being a good drummer. But I still, what's going on today in the world, because I've been more of a working musician as doing it for 25 to 30 years now than in the maturing process, I forget that some of the guys I'm watching on Instagram are like 25 and they're, they're where I was at. And yet they're just I mean, they're blowing stuff out that I'm like, I don't know how much better any human could get as a drummer. You know, I just don't understand how much better it could get. And I'm nowhere near that. So what am I, who am I fooling? Like, just be grateful where you're at and, and just, just love it and just, just love life. And that'll, and, and if you're lucky enough to still get gigs. And so there's a, there's a sense of like, just accept the fact that I don't have to try so hard. And if I have a life that still provides me safety and warmth and a home and food and a shower and and I get to learn other crafts and I can still 
make music. Um, and again, I, I guess what I'm trying to say, if I sort of, if I let up the intensity on the gas pedal of what I felt like I had to do to try and achieve something and made it such an intense thing, when I've eased up on all that and sort of let go of the rope, uh, things are starting to gravitationally just go in a way because, because uh, does that make sense? They're just, they're, they, they're falling into place with a lot less stress and a lot less calculation. I think what happens is when you present yourself in a very honest and open and real way, you are going to attract people that are attracted to that. Yeah. And, and they are seeking you out uh, as a, uh, you know, for your drumming, for your friendship, for whatever, yeah. in a very organic way, not because they want to be a part of your social media team. Yeah. Because they've seen maybe, and, and, and on, on the social media thing, I, I struggle with it as well. I, I feel luckily I can kind of hide behind the podcast in a way, and I can use it as a platform and sell what we're doing here and our, and, and showcase our guests. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I, what I do find is that every once in a while, someone will see something that I post and I'll get work from it. So yeah. I know it works. And I have yeah. some people that we've had on as guests and friends that uh, use social media to get work and have done it really well in such a way that it's like, how do you find that sweet balance? So the interesting, and you bring up a fascinating point, and this is sort of when I say that I find myself in this conundrum, this struggle with whatever you want to call it, is that part of what I have wanted to do for a very long time and part of what I've achieved in opening or, or building and putting together this space that I'm in now in my studio is, is the fact that I've been asked so many times in the last 10 years, like, hey, it, since it began to be a possibility for me to record drums for something in my uh, somewhere else other than where the other musicians are. And I was never able to do it. I resisted doing it because of the, I, could, I couldn't wrap my head around uh, how, how I'm going to be responding. There's no way I'm going to... I'm focused on the drums. I've spent my life learning the drums. There's Let the guy who spent his life learning how what microphones to put on my kit and whatever... But those times have changed. That's not the that's not the, the majority of the way music is recorded and brought into life today is not like that anymore. And so we've all become uh, our own musicians, our own engineers, our own techs, our own repair people, our own mixers and our own masters, and then our own advertising, our own managers, our own agents, our own everything. And it's it's insane. It's insane. Right. Right. Some of it, I, I love the ownership of that and not relying on other people. And sometimes it's exhausting. And my wife is like, how much are you getting paid to do this one song that is yeah. you spent two days on and you've done repeated whatever? Yeah. And we're, You know, it's like, I get it. I get it. And what's the end goal? Is it too soon to tell, you know, based on yeah. technology and I'm getting faster. I think we're all learning. But yeah. we're in this position. We're kind of in this transition. All of us are, well, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are experiencing this transition from uh, a few people had home studios to now everybody has home studios. Mm -hmm. And how do you manage that? And that's that's where the social media conversation comes into play. So what I'm trying to do, and I'll just be the first to, to use your platform to announce my <laughs> yeah. candidacy. I want, you know what I want to do? I want to be a leader and not a follower. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try, 
I'm going to try it. This is a joke, by the way. I'll, anyone who's going down this. You're, you're going to go oh. a new studio name. It's I'm, called oh. Real World Studios. You're, oh, you're, I didn't you're, even realize where. Yeah, exactly. First person to call this thing real world. Hey, Jamie, I hate to tell you this, but there's a singer. I, there's a famous singer you kind of know. I got this shirt at the studio when I just oh, recorded. Uh, yeah, so I got to record there. I've tracked there twice, and it's been unbelievable. And so, yeah, I didn't even realize I was wearing the shirt now that I see it. Man, did you meet him? No, I have. I no, unfortunately, and and yeah, very easy. Again, right here's a perfect opportunity for me to go. You know, briefly, briefly, I ran into him in the and, and you know what? Yeah, we shook hands. He said, "Oh, I love the music." And yeah, he's he's a fantastic human being and loves Cheers for Fears and it's all great. All those English fantastic 80 guys are they're all uh, whatever. I, no, I I wandered the halls sometimes going, well, maybe he'll come around the corner. Maybe he'll be in the kitchen. Maybe he'll be in the commissary. Maybe he'll be in the office because I heard he was there in and out. But yeah, no, I never got to meet him. And I was maybe, maybe but, Manu will be here, and I could ask him about Batman. Exactly. Too. But I did get to meet. I've met Manu once before. I did get to meet him, and you talk about an incredible experience. But uh, so here's the thing. Here we here we have spent this amazing time talking about everything but things like that. Sort of, but that's the other dichotomy of the great life's uh, the the experiences that I've been able to to uh, to be blessed with. That's the other thing, you know. Someone put it. I'd love to be able to make sure that this this comes out right. Uh, when I talk about the self centeredness that I sort of had in my life and and stuff, what I'm saying, I I I definitely bought into. I had not become a hardened asshole. I promise that that many people can just sort of, and it becomes a thing. You know, they just go, oh, that's Joe. He's got a good heart, but he's just a real, he's an asshole. It's like, I wasn't even that. I, I, I just, I was a good guy, but I just did a lot of really dumb things in the moment that, that I just, that, that were, were not thinking about hurting, you know, that what could cause damage to other people. And my, and my point in all that too is I, I, I find myself, um, I find myself struggling constantly with the way that something is going to look. How How is it going to be perceived? How is it going to be? Because I'm going through that now with wanting to be able to open up the ability to work in this capacity, right? So I, if someone goes, oh, I didn't know, guy, Jamie Wallen, Tears for Fears, he can do some drum tracks. Fantastic thing. Point being, I... I, I <laughs> I have to be careful because I'm just as giddy, like uh, working at Real World. Point being, I, I was literally uh, hoping hoping to run into Peter Gabriel because I, I, I'm I a huge fan. And yet I play in a band with Roland Orzabal and I have for 12 years. And, and it's easy to start taking all this stuff for granted. I'm coming back to my point. when I, I did some touring with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. And I remember we had played somewhere... It was somewhere in the States. I think it was D.C. or some. Anyways, we had to fly the next morning. I, of course, after the gig, went out and through through the people that you meet anywhere backstage and friends and blah 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 and I ended up it was a it was on all night and I think I probably didn't even go to sleep or if I did I was finally in bed by four and our lobby call for a plane flight to play the next day at another festival was at like six thirty in the morning. So of course I come downstairs, sunglasses on at six thirty in the morning, lobby calls, you know, whatever and I was like five or six minutes late. And the tour manager was still checking the band out and the other guys were in the in the uh, bus and so I come down or to in the van and I come down and 
and the tour manager says something like, did you check, you know, whatever, check out your incidentals, are you all good with whatever? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine, I got no incidentals. And then I'm like, what the fuck, man? 6.30 in the morning, like, what? what is this, right? And we're the only two people standing there. And he came up to me, and I was wearing sunglasses, right, in the lobby at 6.30 in the morning. And he lifts up my sunglasses, and he's like, you just played drums in front of, you know, six ten thousand 10,000 people last night, and you're getting on a plane to fly somewhere else, right? Uh, business class to get off, to go rush, get, get world off to a venue and play with Tom Morello again tonight. And you're getting paid for this. And he put down his, like let his hands and my sunglasses kind of dropped down. He's like, grow the fuck up, man. Get out in the van. We'll be ready in a few or whatever. And I just, and he was, he was, he was pretty livid. Like, like you don't get it, man. Like you better get this real quick. Cause you don't get what you're, and, and and that has stuck with me ever since, even though it didn't change a lot. I did have this, and so now it resonates louder than a, a Quasimodo bell, is the fact that I, I, I did take a lot of it for granted because I got caught up in a lot of all of that stuff that's so easy to do. And then when you, you know, when you struggle to the point where things like your own health or your own safety or your own wellness and your sobriety and and you know like all i mean again physically i was a wreck it was a tough place to be luckily i had always had a certain <laughs> certain amount of care about my body or enough vanity if you want to call it to try and stay but i was i, I was not well i was not healthy my livers were my liver was shutting down my kidneys were really bad there was a lot of stuff i was just really sick and it amazed and so me again, that you've been continue to play as well as you did during that yeah no I, I i i often have since that time again i i think i just take it back to the place the, the little file for myself that i can just answer that for anything until something else <laughs> comes up or makes more sense it's just that uh it's my safe place like even if I wasn't feeling well, even if, I've never missed a gig that I know I've never missed a gig because I was actually physically sick. I have missed I've missed some gigs with an amazing group of musicians that I uh, from Los Angeles called Venice, which are uh, have been around Scott Crago, who plays with the Eagles, came from Venice. Amazing vocal harmony band out of Venice Beach, California that I played with for many years. And near the end when I was struggling, like I, I, I lost friendships and lost work. We are friends now. And that's again, part of the amends that are made when you can get your shit together if you can, and if you're willing to do the work, but you know, um, yeah, I, 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 to leave other musicians who you have toured the world with stranded at a gig with no drummer, I met like twice then they took a chance on me. So again, I say those things openly and go like that. Those, those are, those are really hard to forget scars that, you know, you may restore friendships. I haven't played with them since then too. Right. I live in Canada and, and life hasn't brought us into that position. And maybe our time for that has been done, but our friendships are restored and they couldn't be more supportive and happy to know that I'm doing so well. So. That's amazing. That's a, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to get into, uh, working with tears for fears and, yeah. and record, mm-hmm. uh, I've been listening to it probably a month after it came out earlier this year and just so enjoyed it. Visited again this last week. Yeah, it's a really good record. I I, I listen really amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's from start to finish through. It's it's pretty much there's not there's not a, it's one of those things where it's easy to to say, "Oh, yeah, it's a great record." And then but if you put that record on and you listen to it, it's not a long record per se and the songs uh are all of such caliber and they flow very well to each other uh, that 
to listen to it as a complete project is uh, is not is not a strain uh, even to me, and I've you know I've heard it many times. So I, f- I find it interesting that that you know you and I are almost the same age, and you know we grew up with Tears for Fears being one of the bands that's kind of the soundtrack of our youth, of our adolescence. And then I know that when you went to listen and learn the music for the first time, when you first joined, you're like, I know all these songs. And, you know, it's like, dude, I remember I have I have vivid memories of this stuff. And so I've always been a fan, even though I didn't like pop music. There was always something about Tears for Fears when you can go through this list of bands, you know, in in the pop world. And you're like, yeah, they were okay, They're okay. Tears for Fears. Dude, those guys, you know, every musician always 100%. Yeah. Always, a- there was something about them that even if you didn't know in your youth, you knew there was something special about these guys on on a musical level that was different. So and 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 in different bands we used to play everyone wants to rule the world and that what a challenge that was to play that groove yeah um, come to find out i was doing it wrong but that's another story <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> um, i'm still i'm still doing it wrong <laughs> oh dude i i think i was playing i was playing i was playing it harder than it should be this is what i love about them too most of their songs the reason why i know and everyone goes everybody isn't because they go oh that's such an immensely immediately memorable uh uh melody which yes it is but still it's because subconsciously they still have heard this song a gazillion times in elevators in restaurants in clubs in stores in every music system it's 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 so people already know, oh, I know that song. They may have zero idea who it is, but it still was good enough to hook. And so that's that's the quality in their writing that I think the musician family that you were talking about, almost any musician would go, oh, I yeah, of course, Tears for Fears. Because I'll tell you this, I grew up in that era too, but when you talk about the sound, the soundtrack to my life at that point, and in my 15 to 16 was not Tears for Fears, it was Motley Crue, and it was, uh, oh, it was all the 80s, it was all the 80s hair metal, because I was in LA playing clubs with all of those different bands, right? So it wasn't, and again, but here's, so even to to uh, embellish or, or even magnify what you said, even as a hard rock LA hair metal you know, band drummer in those when I'm 16 through 21, you played Shout for Me or Everybody Wants to Rule the World or Head Over Heels or Sowing the Seeds of Love. And I'm like, those guys are epic. Who is that? This here, yeah, m- much respect. I like, I don't care what keyboards they use or what, if it's a drum machine, it shouts, sounds, sounds like a hard rock song. Like, so it makes you move. It makes, it's anthemic, it's anthemic. It's, it's got all the ingredients. It's just not as distorted. And it actually has some sonic depth to it and a lyrical depth. And again, man, it was, it was, it's the hooks. It's all the things that when you listen to it enough, it may not be a sharp enough hook to bite you all the way in the tug, but it'll get you from the first thing. And then you keep playing it. And every time you listen to it, that one of those, some different hook will go deeper and deeper. And next thing you know, you're humming it going, God dang, that's a beautiful melody or that's a fantastic song or whatever. And they, they just, they have that knack. And, and, uh, the recording process was a very, very unique thing for me that the, again, probably a whole nother two podcasts, but the, the bottom line of that record is yes, it's me on that record, but the way that the drums were put together, it's also Aaron Sterling, who's on that record. And, 
Um, I think Roland played some drums on it. Charlton Pettis did a few drums. So, but but the drum tracks on that are primarily made up of live playing, but loops of playing. So, for instance, segments of drumming that maybe they had me record, you know, two minutes at uh, 120 BPM, um, and just straight ahead, and then and in adding more ba- busier bass drums in the next two minute segment. And they do, and then they they put on a loop. Roland has an idea he's working on that's at eighty BPM in a shuffle. And so I put on a click and I just play a straight shuffle for a minute and a half. Then the second time, do it and add a lot more ghost notes. Then the third time, do it and add more bass drum. You know, and all this stuff. And so what I did was basically only a few of the songs came together, and that this these were the older ones that that actually made it as a form of the tipping point, which may not have even had a title when we tracked some basics at Ocean Way, like in 2014. But point being is those were still some of the basics, some of the drum tracks that we laid there got spliced up and used in. So it was, it was a very, uh, it, it, it was, the music was created from Kurt and Roland writing together again, together as a, as a team, yet it got put together in a very, uh, probably very Tears for Fears fashion, but very non-usual fashion of the bed tracks were very much laid by a, a culmination of whatever, oh, I want. okay, I want this groove. Or, and so, yeah, whether it's a loop, whether it was me as a live loop or whether it was uh, some Aaron as a live loop, like there's a song called Rivers of Mercy that has a beautiful drum part to it that's, that, I, that wasn't me, that was Aaron. And again, he, was, they had, he had the gain turned up on his mic pre so that that the the main part of that song is he's playing with his hands he's not even the tom-tom parts it sounds like mallets and live i play it with soft mallets kind of you know like 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 uh i can't remember his name ash some who sarah mclaughlin's husband who used to uh be her ash, ash wind sood sood uh, it reminded me of that sort of the feel of that sort of a uh a calfskin weird Indian kit that he played on. If you ever saw it back when he was, yes, uh-huh. that, it's that kind of thing. And that's how I approach it live. But in the studio, it was literally Aaron was just playing with his fingertips down. He had the gain and it's beautiful how it translated. Right. So there's a lot of stuff like that, that, that it just came together in, in bits and bites. And again, it came together in a very, uh, a very scientific way of how it, got put together. So, so let me ask you about the incorporation of electronics. You've got some Elisa's pads, over on one side, and then you've got another. Yeah, so I've got I've got the I've got three of what they're called the Strike Ten pads that are on the left hand side of over by my hi hat. Yeah, and then I actually have the brain unit uh, that's over just above the floor toms. Mm-hmm. So um, most of the time, I'm just using the pads. But a few on a few of the examples, when it's easier to get when I'm over on my right hand side because of where I'm playing, coming finishing after the floor tom, then I'll. But I don't like to play the pad part over on the the eight pad unit. I hate doing it, and it scares me still because the pads are so gosh darn small, and it's dark, and I'm getting old. And I don't, <laughs> <laughs> but but I I seem to have done okay. But it's like and and so I make sure I don't put any two sounds one pad next to each other. Like there's got to be space. So if I I'd rather have no sound than hit a you know a gong where it's supposed to be a side stick or whatever. But this was the first tour I've ever done again. You talk about a really bizarre, this is one of those cases where I think sometimes the odd pairing ends up being a a really uh, powerful thing. And in the great grand scheme of things, no, we're not talking uh, McCartney meeting Lennon and we're not talking whatever. We're just talking the simplicity of, and musicians get this, but the fact that I came from 
As I joked about earlier, I come from a hard rock drumming background, and Tears for Fears uh, comes from more of a pop and new wave or synth through the 80s. But the bottom line is anyone who knows Tears for Fears from Seeds of Love on out too, they they sounded and were always much more of, and wanted to be much more of a rock band live. They come from playing Blue Oyster Cult together as their first in their first band and Deep Purple and all this stuff. So, you know, they both like to... And so here's my thing. You take a rock drummer whose favorite, you know, biggest influence is John Bonham and Tommy Aldridge, and you put him with Kurt Smith, who, as anyone who knows Tears for Fears, Kurt is one of the most underrated bass players I've ever... I, I, I can imagine... Him and him and Tom Hamilton, I think, should be you know uh, from Aerosmith. Because uh, point is, Kurt Kurt could give a shit or does never talk. Does not want to talk about what amp he uses and what strings he uses. I don't even know if he knows or cares. He just plays, and he's always been that way. He's not a gearhead, and he hates talking about bass, and he doesn't do any of that. But as a player, his feel and his pocket and where he feels one is or the and of three and where I feel it is instinctive and it comes much more from the fact that he tends to love being on the back side of it and because of how I play I struggle to ever be on the top side of anything because of so many years worth of being uh, and now I just call it laziness <laughs> like it takes more energy it takes so much more energy to play canary in a coal mine than it does uh, all of all of my love by Zeppelin, right? I don't. I, it's not. I'm too old for that. And then I go, no, I can do it. And so we still have some movers. But point being, yeah, it's a, it's just the feel, it's the pocket, and and it's it's been an amazing fit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I know that sound and tone is so much an important part of what you do and how you want to be, how you want to come across as a musician. Our connection and our ability to connect was through Chris DeGirolamo and mm -hmm. working with ANF Drums, and you are working with ANF Drums. Yeah. Um, we're not a gear podcast. Um, that's for our, our friend uh, over at Drum Candy. Okay. But I'm just curious to know, because this is such a unique drum company, and then with the incorporation of electronics, if maybe you can marry those two things together to talk about your setup with Tears for Fears and how that came yeah. together. How much was that you? I want this, I want this and that. Or how much was that the band or maybe your drum tech coming in and saying, here's what we need to do? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question. And again, I definitely understand. So I'll keep it, I'll keep it, uh, I'll keep it very, uh, as simple as I can. The bottom line is, I, when I when I referred to earlier this being the first tour that I feel like I went at it from a completely different perspective, number one, I was obviously and, and mainly referring to my sobriety and my recovery, right? And doing this clear-headed and in a clear space. The second thing was that for probably about two years, COVID did a lot of really miraculous things for <laughs> me finding uh ways and and things to try and accomplish and one thing i decided that was a good again it was a part of the the rehabilitation and and the the recovery that was happening in my life is i thought you know i've never put i've ne i've really never put more than 2 cents worth of energy into not i'm not going to say what i played cuz i of course uh, I don't think i could maintain a gig or play professionally for as long as i have if i wasn't 
keen enough to have good sounding drums or to know how to have and the difference between drum sets and whatnot. But I, I can tell you, like I still to this day, I'm probably one of the least gear affluent drummers you'll ever meet. Like I know when it sounds good and I will, I, I can, I've learned to speed up the process that used to take an hour to try and make a, a snare sound right. I didn't know what I was doing. So I would just keep fucking around till I'm like, Oh, that's it. Ah, okay. And I learned, but now I can, I can make most drums that I own or a drum set kind of, and it's in a, a lot of it's in how you play. You inherently sit down to play a kit. And if I, you know, you play one of those Toys R Us kits, you inherently sit down and want to go like, like a little, you know, an old vaudeville kind of thing, because that's just the way it sounds. You sit down on a kit that, a Vista-like kit, and you want to play when the levee breaks, you know, <laughs> exactly. You there you go. So tell me that like, you don't you don't find moments and and mayhem of Bonham because it's just what the drums do, right? If you play a big Toma concert tom or Gretsch concert tom kit, you're going to sound like Phil Collins or Peter Chris, and there's just things, right? What I wanted to do, I got turned on. I was with DW, and I I, I always this is the perfect place to just be again because it's drummers, and I don't really. I here's the last dose of what I told you you'd get right, and us talking. I don't give a shit what anyone thinks of me. I'm going to be honest about it, and I'll tell you this. I was with DW for 20-something years, and I was let go. And I was let go because it, in conjunction with what was going on, I wasn't let go because I was struggling with alcohol. I was let go because in the lack of consideration for some money owed to the company, DW, you know, they're a very, very generous company. I was with them for 21 years, but they're still... I, I, unless someone's going to go, wow, I just heard on a podcast that that guy, Jamie Wallum from Tears for Fears actually still has to pay money, some money for drums. Well, yeah, I didn't get stuff free. Actually, I'm going to take that back. I got a lot of stuff for free because many times DW was like, don't worry about it. We're going to take care of you on this one. But if I, it was a kit purchase, I, there was still a deal. I was not a free drum getting guy in whatever I want. And so, but even in that, even in the very, in the big picture, the very little monetary money I had to put into my to play these drums to have and do what I wanted. If I wanted a new snare, a new kit, I didn't. I I was I was horrific with my my responsibility, and I owed them money. And again, just so you know, it was it wasn't the money, and that's what actually. And I've had a chance to since talk with John um, after two years of sobriety, and I reached out uh, to talk to John Good and. And I made my amends and he was incredibly gracious and incredibly forgiving and just was beyond the moon that I was healthy and doing well. So that, again, I speak openly about that's like, you know, and again, in the business, of course, I wouldn't do this on any podcast, but I'm open enough to talk to other drummers going, yeah, I, I was let go because of it. I wasn't, I wasn't, I had become a liability and, and I had hurt, I, I had not been, I had not been caring to the people that had really looked after me for a very long time. So that was a, it was tough, but I got to say this again, as with any, you know, Phoenix, as with any dark side, the life has continued to show, right? That there's can be great, uh, great sunrise and great things that happen. And I had met Rami from ANF at the NAM show in 2015. And, uh, we just, I was blown away. It was the first NAMM show they did, I think. And I saw these drums and I didn't even care what they sounded like. I just saw them and went, what is that? Because they were, they, they're just so different. I was like, Who, what is this? Should be called, 
Civil War drum company or something. It's like just big old marching, you know, every vintage thing you could, you, I had in, imprinted in my brain about a way a drum set looked was there. And then I walked up to the booth and I started tapping on these drums and my God, I couldn't believe it. The sound was exquisite. And then I thought, okay, and I, I'm just talking tapping lightly. I was already, so I met Rami and I met Tabor, who's one, it was his main guy going in, in the building process who's his main builder and uh and we just sort of kept in touch and then lo and behold when things happened with uh with dw again just know this i'd come back from my time in la county i started working at a lumber yard out outdoors in the most physical realm learning all this crazy stuff and maybe a month into that i'm just starting to feel like stuff's coming back together and i get a call from dw and i'm told that you know we're no longer connected and and you talk about a good moment to go like i think oh you'll find me at the local pub here on salt spring island you know drown it that's you talk about a moment where i could have gone wow see doesn't matter what i do it's all just bad and what like and that's what the voice the voices say and i just thought it hurt and i cried i mean as a grown man i i shed tears that night going fuck that hurts that's huge you know and it was such a I, i really valued that relationship however I speak of that to say that it was time and I knew it was still time because there were reasons why I, I, I wanted to leave anyway and I consider it a completely and I'll say God-given ch- uh, circumstance that I met Rami because what's developed out of that has been a really beautiful friendship uh, and a trust and he knows my story. I know the story of where he's come from. Not the same, not, not that. I'm talking just his journey and be into what's led him into this. And he's a spiritual man and he's a father and he's a husband and he loves drums more than anybody I've ever seen. And to be, and I'll say this too, people go like, oh God, that little ANF, they're lucky to have someone like that or whatever. If someone were to ever think that, I tell you what, I'm honored and lucky, not just because of anything else I've said, but because his vision and his passion for drums and i'll be real honest too and i if this gets me in trouble i will i'll have to deal with him but um monetarily these drums are not cheap they're and and even as an endorser i pay us you know because they have to cover costs they can't he has modeled his business in such a way he wants it to be around for his children and his grandchildren and to stay a size that can be managed and where they can continue to hopefully make a beautiful product doesn't matter if it takes three months to get a snare drum built man when you get it you're going to cherish this thing for the rest of your life because it's that made that well and that even just in materials that costs you can't survive if you're doing giving away these these types of drums so point being it's there it costs it's cost me some but i i gotta tell you their motto is play what you love and i'm doing exactly that so i'm endorsed with them the 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 outreach they're taking care of me when i was on the road this kit that i have is an uh, immense immense sounding kit and i'm taking out a big kit right it's called their royal brass and it's their sort of top of the line deal their flagship top of the thing and and again I, I, I fretted and, and thought, what am I going to spend? What am I going to do? What, what do I, and I saw this kit and I talked to Rami and I just said, what's it going to be? What am I going to do? And he's like, this is the kit. I'm like, let's do it. 24 by 14 kick drum, uh, 12, 12 inch by eight inch rack tom, 13 by nine inch tom on the left-hand side that has a snare throw on it. So it becomes a side snare and then 16 and eight, 16 by 16 and 18 by 16 floor toms. Mm-hmm. 
Beautiful. So it's just the bit, and these things have tone for days. So again, as far as the organic acoustic part, I, I was beyond the moon. And the and again, the look of this kit, which so what I did. Hand in hand with Canada, man. I've grown a. I've, I've. This is trim. This is trim for me right now. But I. Nice. Big. I, everyone's saying I look like Conor McGregor. Like I'd slick back, you know, or someone out of Peaky. Like I just walked out of Peaky Blinders because I was wearing like a vest and had my hair slicked back and a big beard and I was just feeling it. I was it. That's where I felt. And so my point is, in all that, I put. I became. Every bit of the guy that I'm like, oh, that guy's just going for a stick. He's just going for a, a vibe and a thing. I'm and I thought, guy. but you, know, but I'm that guy. But you know what? It's real to me because everything about what I'm doing on there, I, I actually thought about the drums I wanted to play because I wanted to play them. And God, thank God they look so beautiful because I would have done it for the tone anyway. Even if they look like North drums, I might have actually <laughs> still, still, still done it. But <laughs> What about the band? What did they think? blown away kurt swears he swears to me that by the end of the next tour that that's coming up this year by the end of this next tour that kid is going into his house as furniture he doesn't care he'll he'll pay me for it he'll do it. it's going into his house for furniture and same thing yes yeah, so sonically everyone's been blown away about it and and i gotta tell you too uh, when i first signed with anf rami was apprehensive he said we're gonna do it but he goes jamie i'm gonna tell you it's every reason why you'd think people would go, of course I want to have Jamie Walden playing ANF drums on a Tears of Fear stage. But it's for every reason that you think I would want to do it that I'm telling you it's against my it's against my game plan because all I wanted to do is have a home for for the the drummers that were incredibly unique and talented but may just be they're 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 the jazz local gods in in uh nice france or they're the, you know what i mean like a global community of drummers from all over the world that that do their unique thing on these special drums and even more so i'm like then even more so let me in because i want in this isn't about this isn't about me just you me auditioning you please let me in i'm begging you please let me be in this family and i'll bring the i'll hopefully and this is right I, but i thought why not bring the road testness and the hardiness of this kit and in a real big time application, let's do it. Let's see how these things go. And, and they were flawless. They were, it was beautiful. I, I've never, and I say this too, I hope I did give enough honest to God credibility and speak highly of DW because again, their drums are incredible and I still have all of my drums from, from my time with them. Um, so I, but these, I've never had as much, uh, attention paid questions notice comments people reach out to me out of the blue going tell me about this like your drum sound like we're doing it right now that i yeah you do you know to talk about gear again yeah so i apologize but no no that's that's great because there's so much of a story to it too it was the reason why i connected with rami was because of exactly where i was at and i was straight up with him it's the first thing i said so like i said it goes deeper it goes about the the relationship too that I forged with them, which is amazing. Like that's been incredibly beautiful. I think as well, the opportunity to use this as a vehicle to open up about DW, the realities of endorsements and those kinds of things is yeah very important. I'm glad we got there. I never thought I would get fired yeah, or get dropped from anything because of, you know, my inability to, to represent it. Well, I would never think throughout any part of my desire to ever be a professional. I, I adored my drums always. I adored, I, 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 
I, I, you know what I mean? Like I, and so that was a huge painful thing to take in, but it's a reality, you know, and it's a reality of the fact that again, it was all things. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being, of course, man. Yeah, man. I've got, I've got one more question for you. Absolutely. This may, I think I kind of know the answer to this, but Mm. maybe to tie all this up and what you've been so open and honest with, with us. And, and I so appreciate this because it stays kind of um, in line with where we want to remain as a community and being open and honest so that we can mm-hmm. move the needle and make it a little bit easier for for all our brothers and sisters as we're dealing with this, you know, um, in this in this business and, and in life in general. But um, so thank you for being honest. Of course. Thank you for having a platform that allows people to, to do that too. So just know that you're, you're you know, yeah, you're you're partially yeah. selfish. I need yeah, a well, lot of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And you know what? It's about time we all smartened up and gone like I could just talk to my buddy about or someone I don't that that I'm just meeting. Because again, if we become really good friends a year from now, yeah, we might struggle to talk like this. Because now we have the safety of like, oh, I don't know when I'm going to talk to him again. I just told him I, you know, had half a half a decomposing body in my trunk, and I'm really sorry about it, but. Uh, he, well, he's never going to see me again, but no, my point is, yeah, it's like an air, it's like airplane therapy. You know, how many times I've talked to someone that I'll never see again. I've heard that like, I could tell them anything, man. I could let, and how much better I feel after a flight. I have some people that I'm friends with on social media that I met on planes. It's fantastic. Me too. And some of the, some of the greatest friends, like I shouldn't say great, some of the most unique correspondences I forged have been around my travel as a musician, especially on, and cause you meet all kinds of crazy people for, for having the first time to connect with you, man. This is beautiful. I'm, I'm just, uh, I thank you for presenting. Thank you for presenting a format that allows us to talk like that. So hit me with your last question, man. I hope it's a good one. <laughs> it better be, it better make me sweat. I don't think it's going to because, I mean, I wrote this down a couple of days ago. I said, what would you do if, if your gig with Tears for Fears went away? That's an ex, yeah, excellent question. I'm going to be really blunt again. Over the last year, I've had more thoughts about that reality and probably more potential hintings. And I'm not saying anything for the community of like, oh, this is going to be their last tour and their last record and whatever. I'm not saying that. I've not heard anything about that. The reality is, is first of all, I'm 52 and I never, this is the, within the last six months, I probably for the first time really started to let in the thoughts of what am I going to do with, with the rest of my life? Like those guys could very easily and very, very, very easily within the next year go, that's it. We're done. And yeah, they could do it within the next two weeks. And there is anything that's been planned. I've seen crazier things go down with canceled tours and whatever it's easy so i could get that call tomorrow point being i don't know but what i what i told myself going into this new year and everything that i've been setting up and again with as much hopefully respect that i've paid to anyone so i don't ever want to come off sounding because i'm so grateful but i want my schedule and my life with my part of tears for fears that part of my life i want that to be the least uh, busy or least important or least creative thing I'm doing this next year. That, and I don't mean that to say that I'm that I don't like that's a, that's a given, right? But I, I just because I don't know, I just want to look at it as like every moment that I have 
with with it, I want to cherish. So I'm not putting any expectation on it. I'm not trying to do. I'm just letting whenever it comes. Now the 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 scary part about that is that what I hope to to have you know to take on and what I hope to expand into in my career um, over the next year or two years, um, I've never not been available to do anything when Tears has asked because I really didn't. You know, depending, I I. I just, it's only once has there been a conflict in 12 years and it's because I was in tour in China with a, a Asian pop artist and they did, they got asked to do Jimmy Kimmel and I couldn't fly back and then make it back for my next set of dates in China. <clears throat> so the, the former drummer, Nick DiVirgilio stepped in and did it. And that's the only gig in 13 years that I, I've missed with tears because I was on the road. Point being is that, you know, I, I look forward to Afni and go, ooh, I don't know if I can... I got to see if I can juggle this around and make it happen because I have the chance to do a record in my studio for, you know, this lovely artist uh, or producing, I'm working on this or I'm doing this. Like I, I, I want to have to sweat that rather than like, Oh yeah, sure. No problem. I'm free in eight months (laughs) for six weeks, you know? So I look, I, that's my goal. But the reality is, is for now, the answer to that is, what will I do with my life? The answer is everything that I am doing right now and everything I've been doing for the last six months since we got off the road and every other thing I've done when I haven't been doing that. And um, if it's, I, I certainly can't do at 52, I, I only have about another three years worth of the type of labor I do right now. Like people, I do a lot of heavy, heavy lifting. And so um, I, I'm not built for that anymore. I mean, I can do it, but I'm getting to the end of my, I'm, it's time for me to, to be, be stabled, right? Cause I, I just, I, I don't, there's, there's younger Clydesdales to do that kind of stuff and I'm going to hurt myself and possibly risk injury to my career. My, my passion, if I, if, yeah, I mean, I work with the, I could lose half of an arm or <laughs> half a leg. I'm on forklifts and cranes and back of huge trucks and whatever. So my point is, <clears throat> um, I would be happy to continue to be a Windsor plywood employee in Salt Spring Island, Canada, for the rest of my life. I would, I would make a living that would provide for myself and my children and and my loved ones. And but it wouldn't be fulfilling like it would be if I could do what I have wanted to to continue to do what I want to do. But it would be fulfilling in a different way. And so I've made peace with that, if that makes sense. That's what would make it fulfilling. It's like knowing yeah. that. You're, you're where you need to be and you're making the kind of art that you want to make with the people you want to, um, you know, but not relying on that as uh, the end all source of paying your bills, because then you're, 100%. Just, you're just chasing your tail the way uh, you did when you were younger. My life is fuller now than it's ever been. And that is primarily because the things that I've opened up to and the things that I'm participating in in life and yes a job being one of them but god if I don't look at it as just the sole reason I'm making money and I look at it as like wow what how are my relationships with my coworkers am I learning a craft am I teaching someone else from, from my experience like I have guys that are, are working under me now that I'm their supervisor and I've only been there three years right so and I, but I'm teaching them the stuff that I've learned in in, in uh, incredible stuff like like I said building stuff that just baffles me and, and, you know, what? here's, this sounds simple too, but you, I'll end with this too. Did you grow up in Nashville? No, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, so you probably found, now again, I grew up in Los Angeles, right? And you probably, I grew up in 
a small suburb outside of Pasadena for the first part, and then in what they call the South Bay, like Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, uh, Redondo Beach, uh, that that area. And so my point is, <clears throat> there's not a lot of trees. Uh, there's there's palm trees and there's parks and there's whatever, but there's or there's the beach. <clears throat> you don't have the kind of landscape that uh, that I didn't have the kind of landscape that I now live in, and it's mind bendingly different. I mean, just the oxygenation that I have. Uh, access to because the amount of foliage and trees uh, on this island in general is is immense like as silly as that sounds moving to another country experiencing what it's like to be a canadian all my life but never having lived in the or participated in the lifestyle or everything that you opened with starting to talk to me about i'm realizing that's in me i'm sort of one of them i've been and so my shedding some of that um what's the word cynical Right, some of my like, oh, there's got to be an angle. Like when I had, oh God, when I had someone on Salt Spring, people farm. There's so many people here that they grow all of their own food. Their septic tank and their water storage is all. It's they live off the grid, you know. Like it's, and I'm kidding you not. And I used to think, oh, that's just hippie Salt Spring, whatever. No, it's Canada, and it yes, it's Salt Spring. It's much, but like it's a different thing up here. And and I didn't. It, it, people think it's it's not that big of a thing. It's pretty different when you're. Even from the cereal foods that people who I'm are my age, we talk about. Oh well, didn't you have puffity pops? And I'm like, puffity pop? No, didn't you have you know Fruit Loops? And they're like, no, we couldn't have Fruit Loops because the, our government never allowed the color the the color dye that's used in the blah blah blah. They could only use natural dye, so we had fruity rings. They're called, and they're only purple and green because that's the only nat. I'm like, well, that sucks, <laughs> you know. And then I'm like, but. But you have some of them, but they have hockey and they have Tim Hortons and they have the most amazing. I mean, you know, it's a rich country with a lot of beautiful culture. But I'm talking, it's a hearty, it's a hearty country too. Like Canadians, it's no joke. The lumberjack, big beard, um, but can you build a house think, and grow garden. Is, is yellow, yellow number five suppressed. It suppresses humility. And so we've allowed that in, in our society. And so we think that Canadians are go around and apologize and are always say, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. It's not true. It's just that we lack the ability to. to yeah, you, you, you've you numbed yeah, the, the yellow five food. Yes. Yeah. Synapse in our brain has been blocked by yellow number five. You could do a podcast on just what yellow number five has done. That's that's actually genius. I was going to say the other thing, too, was that. That's not yeah, scientific, it, by the way. Yeah, that's just, yeah, it, that's just you. Are you sure? Because it certainly sounds scientific. And I guess I bet there is some reality to it. Everyone's life is unique, but we all, all have something to take from each other. And and your experiences uh, are uh, what you've shared with me and us today is something that we all can grow from. And so it, even though, you know, everyone has different unique experiences and different levels of intensity in their lives, um, we all struggle in one way. And, or I, and I, I, we do. And again, whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be that what everyone thinks are typical vices. And again, there's that cliche alert. Well, we've heard that for a while too. It doesn't matter. Anyone can be hurting. And, and you know, point is the reason why they're cliches is because they probably say the most amount of direct truth in the very shortest possible words. It's just truth, right? We're all hurting. Everyone has stuff. And, and and so again, I'm just trying to find that balance in life where I don't, I don't magnify that hurt or the things that I go through. Like because I think 
there's everyone goes through them and it's a part of life if you go through this life thinking that it should every it, uh, that's ridiculous because pain loss uh let downness whatever you want to call it expectations not met uh losing a job losing a gig getting dropped from dw drinking too much drinking way too much going to jail coming back from going to jail deciding that you want all of these things like it everyone's presented with this in different different facets of this every day and we all make mistakes and we all make victories and whatever point being I did want to say this for anyone that might hear this that is going like, oh, well, I, I have to say this because I never know and I have been that guy. But if anyone who does hear this is wondering or struggling, man, I'm, I'm just going to encourage, just ask for help. Just get the strength to just reach out to someone. It doesn't matter. You don't, if, you, if you can't think of anyone you could possibly admit it to, you call a number and that's always sounds silly, but that's why they're there. And it's like, I could never do that. No, I would never. Cause you know what? Yeah. You're too busy keeping your shit together for the Instagram pages and how cool you're, but that's the, unfortunately that's the part of the trap too. Like, man, just ask for help. Cause anyone who thinks that they've got it figured out, man, I don't, even science is saying, yeah, be humble. Even scientists. I tell my kids, none of us have it. We're all improvising. Even yeah. even our elected leaders, we're all just we're just making it up as we go along. Exactly. Let's just try and do it without uh, being shitty or hurtful to each other. And I think it's it's that's the best place to start because through this time, man, this is a there. It's it's we come we've come out of two and a half years of one of the most pressure cooker things that at least in my fifty two years. Now again, I'm we're not in racial Alabama in the sixties, man. So yeah, don't let me make too big of a deal of this when you look at the big picture. But the point is, it's been a really uh, it's been a pretty. The heat got turned up on the cauldron for the last two years, and there's a lot of angst, and there's a lot of division, and there's a lot of people who say, and it's sides, and you're either this or you're that. And man, the bottom line is, if anyone, if anyone wants to tell me to believe or act in a way that's going to cause me to hurt someone else, man, I'm sorry. Like I don't, even, I don't even have to be hurtful back. I'll just say, stay away from me. Like I can't do it. I just can't. You know, there's no need to rise above the noise, man. Grow up, yeah. Everybody just grow the fuck up for what you know, and just yeah. Part of true growth is admitting when you made a mistake. That's going to be subtitle. Jamie Wallen, grow (laughs) the fuck (laughs) up. Grow the fuck up. And and, and he plays with tears for fears, and he did exactly. But 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 more to the point. Yeah, Jamie, it's been a pleasure, man. I really have enjoyed this. Um, I, I this is like a gig, you know. It's like yeah. Oh, you get you get to you know this is fun. It's like I get to put well, man. This uh, yeah, you've talked to some you've talked to some incredible players, some incredible humans, and and just so you know, I'm a big fan now, and uh, you've got me you've got me hooked. So I, I'm I'm on the train now. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, I'll keep in touch for sure, man. And and I so appreciate it. And um, we'll see you soon for sure. Thanks, Jamie. All right. Thank see you. Again. Bye. Bye. Wow. So there you go. My conversation with Jamie Wallum. Uh, what an honor to speak with him, and I so thank him for being candid and open with us. And uh, guys, the new record, the new Tears for Fears record, is just amazing. I, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, gosh, what a great reminder of just what badasses those guys are, and Jamie sounds great. One of the parts that got cut out of this conversation is us talking about a live performance they did on YouTube, multiple takes. You know, you can find it there from something they did not too long ago, but you can see 
a little bit of uh, Jamie behind the scenes playing, and it just sounds incredible. So cool. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with the amazing Jay Belaros. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening, and stay safe, and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.